Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where people are more worried about an attack by ISIS than an attack like the one in Ferguson. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio and at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Professor Luke Gatlin. Speaking of Ferguson and ISIS, you know, they tried putting body cameras on the ISIS members and it increased the beheadings. So that's not always the solution. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. You know, wow. Mm. <sighs> okay. All Anyways. right. Luke, Luke's starting off the show on an awkward note. <laughs> always appreciated. Um, uh, speaking of awkward notes... Uh, Justin Schieber uh, is not here today. He is off or just recently did a debate in San Jose. Is that correct? I think so. I think he's doing his little California tour. Yeah. Justin Schieber is all over the place doing these debates. And in this most recent one, he actually uh, proved once and for all that the Christian God does not exist. So, well, I'm glad we got that taken yeah, care of. He may be out of work now, but uh, it was it was a good run. So, you know, those of you out there who, who like your Justin Schiebers, He's willing to come to your town, so uh, send him an email and uh, set that up. He'll debate anyone you can throw at him, and he'll punch him in the face with reason. Coming up in today's show, we've got uh, God Thinks Like You, Counter Apologetics, and more. But let's start off, and let's talk about beards. We have a couple of news stories here related to uh, the presence and or lack of beards and prison, actually. Uh, both of them are are, are uh, related to people being incarcerated. I guess first off is the continuing adventures of Samuel and Johnny Mullet. Yeah. I thought we were done with these guys. They just keep coming back. We've covered this for years, years. it seems, to the point that it's almost getting boring. But we just felt we needed to have a follow-up. Samuel Mullet is a Amish cult leader. Yeah. He went on a beard-cutting rampage several years back, attacking his rivals, like raiding their homes, going in, forcibly cutting the women's hair, and shaving off the men's beards. Something that you're not supposed to do if you're Amish. Yeah, yeah. it's viewed as kind of shameful. It was a way to punish dissenters within his own ranks mm-hmm. and rivals within the community. He was convicted and started serving a 15-year prison sentence for a hate crime. Along with a a handful of others, like eight followers. Just recently, an appeal court overturned the conviction. A possibility that Mr. Mullet will be retried. Yes. He's still in prison now. He has not been released. There are other charges. Yeah, assault, obstruction of justice, and everything else. But the hate crime aspect, which will get you stiffer penalties, Mm -hmm. has been rejected. It came down to kind of disagreement over how the hate crime laws should actually be applied. And Uh, the judge in this case used it uh, more broadly than the appeals court judges are saying it should. The judge who originally sent it to the jury said that um, the 
uh, religious beliefs of the victims had to be one of the factors yeah, that motivated – just a significant a factor. A significant factor. And the appeals court is now saying that no, in fact, it has to be the reason. Right. Defense attorneys argued successfully that, in fact, there were other reasons involved in the attacks, including political stuff and interfamily, interpersonal, blah 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 So it was not good enough for it to be a reason – for the crime, it has to be the sole reason. One of the dissenting judges actually said, you know, even if there were other reasons involved, the attack itself and the nature of the attack was because of the victim's religious beliefs and was insisting yes. that this was serious enough to truly make it a hate crime. Mm-hmm. And the symbolic nature of it, to me, makes it sure sound like it was targeted religiously. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I'm not really aware of hate crime laws all that much and the case law surrounding it. So mm-hmm. so I guess I don't have much of an opinion on the legal nature of the ruling, but as we pointed out in our previous coverage, it does frighten me to think that this guy is back out. Uh, Although he's not yet. Yeah, or, he, or could be back could out. Be, yeah. Yes. He's still working as a prison barber is my understanding. (laughs) Several people close to the case were depicting this as they might have prevented a very dangerous cult. Right. From the outside, this seems like kind of a trivial thing. Oh, they're they're cutting people's beards. But for the Amish and then the warning signs of this is is a cult leader. This is a – calling him a Jim Jones is probably a little too far, but we're in that – but one who doesn't of, mind doing late-night raids breaking into the homes of his enemies and attacking them, uh, yeah. including his own followers. So clearly a, a gentleman that probably should not be free. <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, legal issues are what really matters mm-hmm. in the courts. And uh, we don't lock people up just because we think they could be a, right. a bigger threat in the future. But more beards in the news. Yeah. If, if you um, are in prison – and would like to have a beard, that is tricky in some places, as it turns out. Um, Some states allow it, according to this article from the New York Times in... Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia, you aren't allowed to have a beard. Weirdly, all southern states. That's any beard. In some other prison systems, you're allowed to have a short beard, uh, shorter than a dime, is mm-hmm. the is the length that they use to measure apparently? Our Arkansas that I mentioned, uh, yeah. I guess, is one of those that allows the uh, the quarter inch beard, mm-hmm. uh, but they only allow it to inmates that have uh, derm- dermatological yes issues, which uh, I assume means ugly or like yeah. me baby face. So you can use right. it to disguise. Disguise yourself, but apparently not if you have a religious conviction that you must grow a beard, which several religions do, Islam and and more orthodox interpretations of Judaism or ultra-orthodox. The Amish, the Sikhs, right? Yeah. Now, luckily, not a ton of Sikhs in prison, if I remember the uh, prison statistics correctly. Um, they tend to be a pretty peaceful people, but uh, if you seek yeah. them out, I'm sure you'll find a few. I'm <sighs> uh, this is exactly what people complain about all the time about our show. Well, that's what they're getting into. That's right. Who is the group defending the beard-growing people? Defending the beard-growing people are none other than our friends from the most recent Hobby Lobby case, yeah. the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. 
they clearly view this as a religious liberty issue, and it's hard to disagree with them on this. And I guess there's some speculation now, like how is the how's the Supreme Court going to handle this? Because, After agreeing that corporations right, have religious, uh, are they going to deny them to the to religious people to Muslims? Right? Yeah. I guess they're probably going to have to just apply the same standards. Right? Is this a burden on their religious practice, which yep. seems to be the case? Yes. I mean, we discussed in previous episodes why that really isn't a hard test to pass exactly. anymore. And then does the state have a compelling interest? Is there a less restrictive way if the state does have a compelling interest to see its interest fulfilled? The case for the state is that you could hide stuff in your beard. They need to mm-hmm. shave these because you could hide razor blades. Drugs. Drugs. Any kind of contraband. They, they had a quite a clever list of things that yeah. you could Which fit into a beard. Made me want to try all of them. I want to see if I could smuggle a Gillette bayonet in my. Uh, Listeners <laughs> can't see this, but Dave has a mighty beard that he's used to probably smuggle items into places. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that people can really conceal much in their beard. I can't even hide spilt soup in my beard. Flash drives. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Flash drives. That, well, they had some stuff like SD cards for cell phones was yeah, one of the yeah, things. S- that, uh, yeah, uh, SIM cards. The Yeah, yeah they was, were of concern to that. Now, the truth is they don't really have a lot of reports of this. When they were trying right. to come up with evidence that this actually takes place, in one of the trials, the attorney for the state was claiming that somebody had snuck in a chunk of a razor blade mm-hmm. that they had used to end up killing themselves. Later on, it, it came out that actually the person didn't hide the razor in their beard. They killed themselves with the Gillette razor they gave them to shave, to shave off their, their beard. Oh, so it's... they're playing a little fast and loose with mm-hmm. the evidence. They're basically basing their case – on uh, the idea that the court should just defer to the prison officials uh, since the they prison know officials, since yeah. they know what yeah. is best, and they they have explicitly said it's in the court brief quote courts should not insist on studies data or concrete examples Jesus. to prove that this is really a problem. This is the American legal system, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it's got them through – that argument has got them through the appeals court up until this point. Well, and and the judge, uh, uh, Magistrate Judge Joe J. Volpe in the Federal District District Court looked at the prisoner in question, uh, Holt is his name, and said, It's almost preposterous to think that you could hide contraband in your beard, but there's a bigger picture here. Bigger picture being that, okay, this one guy maybe can't hold contraband in his beard. And I think also maybe the bigger picture has a little something to do with the particular religions being practiced by people who yeah, want to have I, beards. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but you get into real tricky territory because if you're telling people you know, what they can do with their facial hair, what about hair? Can they not hide things in their hair? Are there as strict rules about that? Well, that was, that was pointed out uh, as far as – What you know, about body hair? Sl- I've seen – my dad yeah. could have hid more stuff in his body hair <laughs> uh, than I could in, on the top of my head. So. As far as does the state have a less restrictive way of doing this, this guy Holt who's at the center of the mm-hmm. lawsuit pointed out, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do. You can have me run my fingers through my beard, you know, to check if there's yeah. anything in there and – and uh, yeah, they had all sorts of no nonsense ways to right. to get around this without 
restricting We've their ability. We've all seen orange is the new black, right? We know how yeah. thoroughly they check body cavities and and <laughs> everything. I mean, there are plenty of ways to sneak things into a prison. Yeah, other and, than a beard. Yes, which is an important religious uh, thing for many people, and also you know people who uh, have goofy faces and want to cover it up. So. I think it's tough, especially when you have as many states as there are that do allow facial hair in prison. I think it's going to be a tough case to win um, to outlaw it. Yeah, well, but with we'll the Supreme Court, one we'll see. never knows. I'm, I guess I'm most interested in the cultural viewpoints on this. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like. I'm curious to see when this is picked up. If the typical people crying out for religious liberty mm. will feel the same way when it's. You know, a Muslim mm-hmm. or a Jew's religious liberty that they do when it's, you know, over birth control. But we'll see. Yeah. Uh, apparently, I, people in both Austin law firm and Portland itself. are very upset about this. <laughs> By the way, it was National Beard Day this week. So this is perfect. Timing. Oh, no way. That's what I heard from one of my uh, bear friends. Not an actual bear, but uh, anyway. Some of his best friends are bears. Some of my best friends are bears. Yeah. Well, moving on to non-beard-related news. This is where I check out. Previous guest on the show, Chris Mooney, has a new article out in Mother Jones this month. The headline is uh, unlike what you'd expect from Mooney, who's often (laughs) labeled an accommodationist. Mm -hmm. Uh, The headline is science and religion really are enemies after all. This is coming from a study. This is not. Yeah. This is not an opinion piece. This is. Yeah. This we've is got a the facts study. to back it up now. This is a Princeton economist Roland Bonobo. 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 No, it's not Bonobo. 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 I don't know. Something Frenchy. Princeton economist that. Roland B. Looked. Uh, they compared countries to other countries and some of the states within the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, came to the conclusion that higher levels of religiosity are actually uh, related to lower levels of scientific innovation. Mm -hmm. And their kind of measure for innovation, because that's a very difficult thing to quantify, their measure for innovation was patents. How many Mm -hmm. uh, patents are registered in these different states? Pretty consistent finding. They controlled for all sorts of variables, you know, income per capita, Mm -hmm. the rates of higher education, you know, the population of the state. Which ties into religion as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, uh, connecting factors. Yeah. Yeah. So all those statistical controls sort of eliminates other possible like, well, it could be the economy Mm -hmm. of the region or it could be the education level to more closely target. Like I guess their point is, is that one way to interpret that would be that the religiosity has sort of a specific effect in inhibiting people's coming up with ideas and filing their patents. Yeah. And it's important to say they're not saying this is the key driver of scientific no, of innovation. It's that once you remove all the other well-known sources of innovation, there is this kind of residual amount of extra innovation in these less religious states that seems to be explained by by religion. It's one of those things that seems kind of obvious um, if you look back at history and you consider different cultures and their scientific advancements as related to their religion. Like uh, Egypt had a very orderly view of the world and so they come up with some uh, pretty 
fantastic scientific advancements, including a relatively accurate calendar and a lot of uh, engineering things, you know, all of which would kind of fall under the patent banner if we're using the same thing here. Whereas you turn to, um, you know, Mesopotamia and you have a, a much less uh, scientific view of the world, uh, an ordered view of the world. Things are much more complex and you get uh, still some great uh, advancements, but very different types. So religion often affects the kinds of advancements or lack thereof and will push cultures to a, a, a certain stopping point a lot of times. Like they can't really go much further into biology or astronomy or whatever because they have these religious beliefs that says, look, the earth is the center of the universe or what have you. And that that puts a stopping block on further advancement. So you always hear this argument though when I've engaged people is that they say it's contradicted by history that a lot of the great scientists and philosophers were Christians or religious mm. people themselves and the Isaac Newtons of the world yeah. and all these things get out. And one thing that, that always struck me that's, that is a problem with that argument is it depends on what the scientific issue is in question. Exactly. I don't know yeah. that many religious people except super like, fundamental, like the Amish or we just talked about where they object to science or engineering in general. Right. They're just past fine, 18 you know, whatever their cutoff. Yeah, if you're a fundamentalist, yeah. you in fact love the the products of a modern society yeah. like YouTube where you can post your beheadings or you know weapons and things like that, Absolutely. bomb materials. It's when the scientific inquiry process gets into more areas that would be a turf battle with the religious domain. Right. So obviously things like the origin of the universe mm-hmm. or evolution of the species or human consciousness, those things are different than building widgets. Or mm-hmm. or you know, Isaac Newton as an example Physics, uh, especially his idea of physics, fit very well into his – It's a clockwork, ordered universe, uh, an orderly – God created an orderly laws of the universe. Yeah. And yeah, so I wouldn't expect that religious people or or churches or doctrine would have any problem with that sort of scientific inquiry. But then you get like a Galileo sort of thing where, but wait, the orbits aren't perfect or or that um, it doesn't fit with this – this notion of, you know, there's pockmarks on these other heavenly bodies, then you start to get things like, well, that can't be. The universe is clearly older than five, 6,000 years. Yeah. So, you says, have, so, yeah. so yes, yeah, so I don't think that there's an inherent, any type of scientific or technical finding is contrary to any type of religion. It's when it question it's when it challenges the, the religious authority to decide, you know, things but, like that. But then this study is interesting because they're looking at patents, which is, you know, it's certainly one way to measure scientific advancement. And that's largely engineering. We're talking about yeah, inventing things, which is not That's not really science. Uh, oh, is that is that your Well approach it's not really science this? engineering is not really science in the sense of of targeted things to specific problems. You know, I always psychologically Things, but the guys that I knew in college that were the engineers were often the most rigid conservative religious types because they built a wall between that. There was even an article that was, came out and a while this, back that called study, like, engineers and suicide bombers, like question mark, because the guys who oh, did the World Trade Center yeah, were, were highly technically trained engineers. Yeah. The science is in service of solving a specific practical problem. Right. Engineers aren't interested in, in the – like what it all means big picture-wise – you but know, then this study would suggest that that may not be true. Yeah, I, I getting, think that's maybe the real interesting yeah. thing in this study is I, that, that there is such a strong relationship between the religiosity of the population and their patents. It's so consistent too. If uh, uh, We're going to link to the study, but if you look at it, this is 
across regions, across countries, mm-hmm. across the world. It's this relationship just seems to hold up no matter yeah, what they, they try to tease out of it. It's related. But I think that the, the relationship there is that, with, that there might be an inhibitory effect with religion with certain types of like curiosity about – about the world that could manifest yeah. itself in patents. Yeah, but I think that what I'm saying is the relationship is stronger when you talk about science that directly challenges the underpinnings of the whole C- the, certainly. the deeper you yeah. get. Certainly. But yeah, I do find that interesting that that it could just filter down to this to this general effect of mm-hmm. stamping out curiosity or whatever. I'm, the study's authors admit this is all correlation. This is, yes, you know, yeah, nobody absolutely. knows exactly what's causing it. He thinks it really comes down to uh, the lead author said the political power of the religious population in a given area. Technical progress or social change are tend to be met with greater resistance and diffuse more slowly, he said, in these particular areas. In areas that are more secular, quote, discoveries and innovations occur faster, and some of this new knowledge inevitably erodes beliefs in any fixed dogma. So he, he was speculating that causally the relationship probably works both ways to some degree. Religion might dampen down scientific innovation or scientific curiosity, but at the same time, innovation as it's going on, if you're in that area, it can, it can affect religion. It can erode people's more traditional beliefs. Well, the vision that popped in my mind is somebody inventing a, getting a patent for a new Bible reading device on your iPhone that gives verses. That, that would be something where you would be religious and have a file a patent. It would be a great thing. But then it starts generating things that don't match with translations. Well, this one says that and the other one says that. What are we – it's a satanic invention. You should have never gotten that patent. No, there's a – just looking at this chart that the article offers, there's something that it should have been completely obvious. But uh, China and Japan have both the lowest levels of, of the group studied – of the country studied of religiosity and the highest levels of innovation. Yeah. China and Japan. Duh. I mean, everything's coming out of they China were and Japan. Pretty high up there. And then you have Iceland, which is also hugely innovative and I was surprised they were a bit of an outlier. They were yeah, more heavy more heavy religiously than uh, mm-hmm. than the rest. And that was one of the things that struck me as looking at looking at the different charts of the study yeah. is that you definitely see all the data points clustering uh, together, mm-hmm. but there are tons of outliers also. Yes. Yeah. It's a cloudy – it's a messy cloud. Port- yeah. Portugal. Man, innovation in Portugal so, was just at a minimum. There's a lot of variables behind innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the religiousness or the secularity of your area I guess is just one. Well, as with the the um, other studies that we've talked about, when you can move from a correlational to an experimental – method that's usually preferred. Mm-hmm. How do you experimentally assign things like, you know, patents and whatnot? You can't really do that. But there are some other studies that uh, that have uh, addressed this issue of whether religion is at odds with scientific interpretations of things. And like I was saying before, one of the um, things that cuts a little deeper than just engineering or innovation in a technical sense is explanations for your psychological experience, mm-hmm. i.e. things that conflict between the brain versus your mind or soul. Um, and so there was a study that came out uh, last year uh, uh, called The Neuroscience and the Soul, Competing Explanations for the Human Experience. The lead author is Jesse Lee Preston. Um, but what they were getting at here is, is there a, a hydraulic or a incompatible relationship when one goes up, the other must go down between mm-hmm. – Religious belief and specifically 
giving people the notion that neuroscience, so things like magnetic resonance scanning, brain scans and things like that, could provide explanations for things that are a little bit deeper, like your uh, love or your emotions mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. your soul or we're, things we're like that. We're talking about a, thing, a, a field of science that's going to conflict a lot with religious beliefs. Yeah, because it, you, theoretically. you see every day now there's like a new study where they show these bright and shiny brain photographs of your mm-hmm. brain in action that say, you know, when you fall in love, this part of the brain lights up or, right. you know, or even like the stuff that I see when you have a religious experience, yes. this part of your brain lights up. Or you speak or in tongues. Like that, yeah. you, you wonder if somebody has a dualist view of the of themselves like yes yes obviously there's the brain but these special domains like religion and my thoughts and emotions those can only be accounted for by my mind and soul right. mm-hmm. what would what would they make of when they are exposed to explanations like oh neuroscience that stuff's covered up with that too what well, what do they think when they see the god helmet the god right. helmet yeah <laughs> where people are like jesus was talking to me when you flip the switch yeah so the um, in the study what they did is they did a couple uh, sub Components, but they were all based on giving people uh, exposure to conditions where, again, neuroscience can explain stuff like that, like your emotions. So the first study, for example, was they gave people uh, sample course descriptions for uh, college courses, and in some of the conditions, the uh, neuroscientific explanation was complete, like, oh, mechanisms of falling in love through your brain mm-hmm. or something like that, as opposed to uh, there's gaps in knowledge, like science can explain some stuff. And what they did was for their dependent measure was whether the people valued their soul or not. That is, they gave people scenarios where what if you could be frozen and then thawed out later on? The only problem is that your soul would be destroyed in the process. Would you be willing to undergo you know, cryogenics and things like that? Uh, and so what they found was is that people uh, were a little bit more carefree with their concept of the soul when they were given hard neuroscientific explanations hmm. for things. So like in other words, when the brain can explain these deep emotional things, people would, would – uh, one of the clever things I thought in the, one of the studies was they gave them a little card that said your soul on it. It had a unique stamped number there. And then the, bar- <laughs> the experimenter <laughs> tried to bargain with them like would you be willing to sell me your soul card for – how much? You know, for ten bucks. <laughs> and so they were—they actually put a price on the person's previous research. By the way, has found that even people who are uh, skeptics or atheists or not religious people, they—they they are reluctant to sell their soul to the experimenter when offered. I, I would sell my soul for enough money to buy those little sponge dinosaurs that grow when you spray them with a hose. Simpsons, anyone? Bart oh, sells his soul to Millhouse. Yeah, Millhouse. I just right. saw the Simpsons Marathon was on recently, and I saw that episode. That's oh, right, God, because one of the greatest. Millhouse is like, well, that, why don't you sell it to me? Then Bart's yeah. like, sure, chum. Five. Yeah, <laughs> for five bucks, and he buys the little. That was one of the. Yeah, that is a good episode because then he has these nightmares where he doesn't have his soul doppelganger. Yes. But uh, yeah, so even people like that 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 are are sort of laugh it off. There are studies that show that they hesitate a little bit when the when the experimenter challenges them to hmm. sell their soul. Mm-hmm. But what they found in this in the Preston study here was that exposure to evidence that neuroscience can explain everything without gaps made people more willing to kind of do away with their soul or sell it for cheap or things like that compared to people that were exposed to conditions where, well, science can't explain everything. Mm-hmm. And so what the authors, the way that they put it was, is that the um, there was, again, like a hydraulic relationship, a, a teeter-totter, if you will, that the belief in your soul decreases when you think that neuroscience provides a strong mechanistic 
explanation for the mind. But if there's gaps in the explanation, you know, yes, science does some things, but not everything, that enhances the person's belief in a soul or their valuing of a soul. So in order to eliminate belief in the soul, all we'd have to do is educate people better about neuroscience. Well, here's the problem, though. People mm. are, as we've talked about in the show, you can educate people about a lot of things, but if those things have deep emotional, maybe even unconscious roots, sometimes it can backfire. What if you explain their emotions to them using neuroscience? <laughs> Would that work? Then they just curl in the corner and go into a fetal position. I've tried that. What if we control their emotions with neuroscience? Take the red pill class. This half of the class, red pill, other half, blue pill. It makes sense. And I wonder if we're almost seeing a parallel of this developing in theology. I, one of the pa- things of the past decade that I've seen change a lot in talk in Christian circles is this greater embrace of Christian materialism. We even have some people at uh, Calvin College, um, some of the head theologians there, who still talk about a soul, but when you press them about it, they believe that the soul is some aspect of the brain. And they base this on the idea that the Jewish tradition, that there will be a physical resurrection of people's bodies, not a necessarily some sort of spiritual resurrection so or a the, rapture. the brain itself... And uh, what's interesting is they often back themselves up. They back up their position by evoking the philosophy of mind arguments against dualism, by evoking the evidence from neuroscience. I mean, there are other people like the Creation Research Institute. William Dembski, for example, has been writing some pretty aggressive papers trying to target materialist assumptions in neuroscience and how wrong that is. That's what we talked about in our episode with Stephen Novella. So there are definitely people who are holding the line on the soul, but I wonder if others are just saying, you know what, let's not let's not make this another conflict for religion. <laughs> let's preempt them the, the, and adopt this different metaphysics. The magisteria are moving inward, to put it into yeah. the overlapping magisteria things, mm-hmm. and that is the conflicts are becoming less and less about age of the earth things, although there are some holdouts, obviously. Well, of course. But it's becoming more more uh, as the brain science develops, the 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 borderline the, the no man's land is becoming more and more internal and you can see why because that does pose problems for you know that we we think of it that way but even the most you know not particularly contemplative college student must be sitting there looking at this stuff like wait a minute yeah if the brain is a, if my thoughts are a product of a mechanistic thing like the brain and you know genes and chemicals and stuff can alter the thoughts that alters things like morals beliefs subjective experiences those things are just merely electrified right. meat. Yeah, and it, it, it's remarkable that the internal is becoming like the last refuge of, of non-strict fundamentalist religious people where they say, well, you know, my mind, my soul, that's where I know that God exists because neuroscience is pretty good. We can explain a, a lot of this stuff that – it, there's not a lot of places for them to hide the God in the gaps when it comes to uh, neuroscience. But yeah, And we should say not all religions. I mean, like Buddhists, for example. There are, are gaps. Open. But yeah. Well, yeah. And there always will be. But yes. But yeah, it, those gaps are closing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's, there was another uh, study that was interesting that I read recently that was uh, utilizing terror management theory, which some of our listeners might have heard us go on about in previous episodes, uh, that – 
But in this case, what they looked at was the person's um, mortality salience or contemplation of their own death as it affected their sense of connectedness with the rest of nature, like their naturalness. Mm -hmm. I think we might have mentioned before things like um, if you challenge people with thoughts about their own demise or their death, they become less willing to view themselves as being you know, essentially an animal or they might defend themselves against their own mortality by saying that I'm they're, you know, a dualistic thing. I'm not just an animal. So things like they become less, um, they become more objectifying of animals and pets and things like that under threats of death. But not everybody. As you might imagine, people that are the more sort of digging in tight are religious fundamentalists because their worldview is much more dualistic and literalistic. Yes. That is, there's a literal immortality. There's not, a lot more to threaten there. You, yeah, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't just move into the light. You actually bodily go there with Jesus as you and Jesus as a person. And so in this particular study, this is the title is Faith and Nature, the Effect of death, Death-Relevant Cognitions on the Relationship Between Fundamentalism and the Connectedness to Nature. The lead author is named uh, Matthew Vess. But they took people who were high religious fundamentalists and they exposed them to things like thoughts of their own mortality, like write about your death or things like that. And then the other side, they looked at how connected they felt with nature. So things like do they feel part of the natural world as opposed to separate from that? You know, that you are uh, just as physical as that tree or that animal there as opposed to no, I'm special, I'm different. And as you might imagine from the context we're talking with, the fundamentalists, if they're a high fundamentalist and threatened with thinking about death, they became more disconnected from nature. Hmm. That is, they f- felt that the natural world was more separate from themselves when they're scared about dying. Now, that seems of mild interest, but if you think about that, what effect would that sort of defensiveness have on things like climate change or, you know, end-of-the-world type stuff, it also explains why these things are not just factual issues. If you come right. at people and say, look, the world's, the planet's warming, we're all going to wipe ourselves out. Yeah. If you are dug in... My to, real treasure's in heaven, Luke. Yes. Yeah, see, that's a problem because those people, if you freak them out with threats like death, fear, whatever, they sometimes dig themselves even tighter to know God would never let that happen. Or, yeah, yeah who cares about the natural world? Mm-hmm. We're building up treasures in heaven, some sort of nonsense yeah, yeah. like that. that. That is, it has implications for sometimes it could backfire to do the scare the hell out of them approach to things like you're going to ruin the planet or, you know, we're going to wipe people out with nuclear weapons. Go the stewardship route. Yeah, go the stewardship saying. route. Yeah. Try to frame it in terms of the religious values of why they should take care of the planet mm-hmm. or why it's important that the planet is warming, not that we're all going to die. Because if they're sort of act now, or we're all screwed. Yeah, say that's things not work. like God. God made you believe that God made this world and that it's a it's a you know a special place. You have enough responsibility to take care of it. Instead of you're going to die if you don't do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is God's world. And even just for non-psychological reasons, there are organized networks of, of groups that are promoting environmentalism from a religious perspective. Mm-hmm. It's easier to tap in somebody into that. But. And then there's that uh, – the recent craze of people making their car- cars pollute as much as possible. Oh. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have, have you, you, have seen, you not this? seen this? No. Oh, it's horrible. Is that a parody? It's disgusting. No, this is a real thing. People will, will – They're like the drill they, baby drill They type? do something yeah. – I'm not – I'm going to sound like an idiot explaining it. I don't anything it. about they, cars. They do but. something to build up the level of coal or carbon yeah. in their uh, exhaust pipes and then they eject it all out. At once, so they're posting videos of their big black clouds of soot. Yeah, I think on Colbert they had 
these assholes drive up to some woman and like act like they were trying to pick her up and then they drove past and blew the suit in her yeah. face but apparently yeah this is if you're a conservative anti-environmentalist nowadays this is like the fun hobby on the weekends we should mention too that study they just talked about tear management they even controlled for political conservatism yeah my first thought was well obviously fundamentalists all of this are going to be disconnected from nature because they're also conservative and it wasn't just due to that there was a specific Hmm. religion there's an obvious political component and now it's almost to be a conservative means certain environmental positions global warming but this one is that religion seemed to add a little bit extra on to that above the political conservative Mm -hmm. uniquely that is it's uh, it's a defense against mortality to feel that you are just part of decaying nature hmm. and the rest of the planet. I mean, and that goes by, you know, to, we've talked about mythology that goes all the uh, Christianity and Judaism hmm. are very dualistic. Nature versus versus um, body and spirit are two different things, sort of dualism that's not present in all the religions and the Eastern ones, for example. Uh, that if you have a mythology that the garden. You know, the garden goes back – if you believe in all that stuff literally, that to be natural is to be sinful or anything that's spontaneous is done in direct contradiction to what God told you to do, that's going to set up a whole variety of attitudes about the world as being – you know, like pilgrims used to view the – the, the, the natural world as being something to be fixed yeah. or it's mm-hmm. evil and Although broken. weirdly, if you actually read Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve uh, before the fall of man – they're vegetarians. They're not killing animals even for clothing. There the is a responsibility. Exactly. There's a responsibility to the environment yeah. there, which a lot of Christians do acknowledge, and it, it causes them to care about the environment. There are plenty of it. there are plenty of but, green verses and mm-hmm. uh, and as, and like pro animal verses too. Yeah. Uh, uh, still practices that. Many of us would find barbaric. Right. Yeah, regulations and the laws about treating animals well and everything. Unfortunately, uh, the Apostle Paul ruined, ruined all of that by commenting <laughs> on it and again. saying, do you think that was for animals or nature? No, that was God telling you you should pay your ministers. But yeah. anyways. Good old Paul. His environmental realities pose quite the dilemma. For today's conservative believers. Uh, Look at that. But speaking of dilemmas, (laughs) we're going to talk about one of the oldest dilemmas for religion there is, Euthyphro's Dilemma, on this week's Counter Apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. What can you say about Euthyphro that hasn't already been said? Is that a Socratic question? It was more of a rhetorical question. And what is good? In that uh, everybody listening to this show is probably very familiar with Euthyphro's dilemma and probably familiar with some of the critiques against it. For those who are not, here's a quick overview. This challenge to philosophy of religion is called Euthyphro's Dilemma because it's taken from Plato's dialogue between Socrates and Euthyphro. You know, usually out of that whole dialogue, most people only talk about the one or two sentences where Socrates sets up his famous dilemma. But I would really encourage people who are interested to read the entire dialogue. There's actually a lot of good things in there that are still relevant today. Here's real quick one of the lesser quoted passages from the Euthyphro dialogue. Socrates asks, well, what if Euthyphro does prove to me that all the gods regard the death of this serf as unjust? How do I know anything more about the nature of piety and impiety? 
For granting that this action may be hateful to the gods, still, piety and impiety are not adequately defined by these distinctions. For what is hateful to the gods has also been shown to be pleasing and dear to them. So the dialogue is discussing this, is trying to figure out this nature between impiety and piety. And in question is the unjust death of a, uh, of a slave. But what Socrates is bringing up is in their polytheistic system, if piety is what the gods desire and impiety is what the gods dislike, well, you have some contradictions there because the gods are not all of one mind. And uh, I think they're not even consistent within themselves. Right. Yeah. And we have parallels, of course, to the biblical example because we have Yahweh commanding thou shall not kill, but other times ordering people to kill. Mm -hmm. We have Yahweh punishing people for their jealousy, but boasting in his own jealousy. You know, there doesn't always seem to be a lot of consistency in the biblical narrative to what is really righteous or what isn't. So it's a... You know, it's a meaningful question even for studying religion today. But of course, what Socrates points out is before we even get to this question, before we can even satisfactorily answer this one, there's a deeper question underlying it, and that is the famous Euthyphro dilemma. So from the dialogue, the point which I should first wish to understand is whether the pious or the holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy, or is it holy because it is beloved by the gods. I think as we typically try to translate that into our present needs, does God approve of something because it is good or is something good because God approves of it? Why it is a dilemma is because if you think of it in relation to the Christian God, either horn of the dilemma you take is very unsatisfactory. If we take the second horn of the dilemma and say that good is whatever God approves of, then goodness is really arbitrary. God could just as well command murder, rape, torture, anything at all, and we would still call it good. Key to this is that God has no moral reason to command us to love as opposed to hate. Uh, He might have reasons, but they can't possibly be moral because love and hate Neither one of those states is any intrinsically better than the other. Now, if we take the first horn, God approves of something because it's good. The idea of perfect goodness might still be intelligible, but goodness would exist separate from God. Knowledge of goodness might not even depend on God either. And this seems very unsatisfactory uh, for most Christians because it, it implies that God is obedient, has to be obedient to some sort of standard of morality outside of himself, right? And ultimately, the good doesn't depend on him. J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig in their Philosophical Foundations for the Christian Worldview put it this way, this alternative is taken to be incompatible with classical theism because it compromises the sovereignty and aseity of God. God is himself duty-bound to obey certain moral principles, not of his own creation, but as if it were imposed on him. And obviously, this this doesn't fit the Christian God very well either. Well, we're familiar with that dilemma, and many Christian philosophers have felt rather strongly that they have answered it, that this is not – this is really a false dilemma. Mm -hmm. There are other options here. And in fact, I've on previous episodes even conceded that I might agree with them. I might agree that this solution is workable. Um, I guess my position on the show has always been the metaphysical grounding of the good in theism is is not really the key question. The real question is, is 
God's goodness or God's holiness intelligible? Can we actually understand what it means to even say God is holy? Because I think it's a nonsensical concept that we really can't put any content to. And so I've just kind of not paid attention to the whole Euthyphro dilemma for years. Uh, to me, it was a it was a dead issue. But my mind has recently been changed by reading an essay by Jeremy Coons. The paper is called, Can God's Goodness Save the Divine Command Theory from Euthyphro? Published in the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion. And what Coons shows is something uh, actually Justin and I have argued on the show before, or at least we mentioned. We've, we've made the case that maybe the Euthyphro's dilemma, the solutions to it, just push back the dilemma one step. But Coons gives a really convincing argument as to why. I suppose first I should talk about the way in which philosophers of religion typically try to split the horns of the dilemma. You've probably heard this from William Lane Craig, uh, William Alston, probably lesser known name, and uh, Robert Adams both make this same case. And it's a, it's a pretty popular option. The idea is if we view God's own nature as the standard of goodness, this will somehow solve the problem. Why exactly is that? Well, if God's nature is essentially good, then all good qualities, whatever they are, being loving, being just, being merciful, then those are also qualities of God. Now, that seems not to be much less arbitrary than than either of the horns we talked about before. But if you think about it, it is slightly different In this kind of scenario, God cannot act or cause somebody to act in a way that's contrary to his nature. So he can't just do anything he wants. On the second horn of the original Euthyphro dilemma, that was kind of a might-makes-right morality. Whatever God says is good is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this one, he can't just be capricious and arbitrary. He is kind of bound to his own nature. So it's impossible to have a scenario uh, where God commands people to hate and hate becomes good if, if lovingness is an essential part of God's own character. Uh, God's nature as the standard of goodness actually constrains what goods are possible, and thus goodness is not arbitrary. But then it sounds like, okay, so is God duty-bound to his own nature? Does, it, does he have to follow certain moral principles, like the first horn would say? And actually, this seems to get around that objection too because God will follow his own nature, of course, but he doesn't have to choose to do the right thing. He doesn't have to hold up his behavior to some standard and make sure he's conforming. God would just naturally do what's right as if by instinct. Uh, He actually can't act in any other way. Now, what's interesting about this idea, if God is not following some sort of external standard to himself— that might actually resolve some of the other weird quirks of biblical morality. Uh, here, let me uh, quote Moreland and Craig one more time about God not being duty-bound. They say, Taking the life of an innocent person is something we have no right to do, but God is not similarly restricted. I know, that's a doozy right there. <laughs> this is not to say that God could have brought it about that it be a general moral duty for people to kill one another. Issuing a general command that we we should seek another's harm would be contrary to God's loving nature. But in the extraordinary case of Abraham and Isaac, if you recall, right, God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son. Go kill your son for me. He says it was not unloving of God to so try Abraham's devotion. God had good reasons for testing him so severely. 
So this is, Isaac felt the same way right. about that. The way – yeah, I – again, I'm kind of cringing at the very thought. Mm-hmm. But at least philosophically see what he's, what he's kind of pointed out here is that we're getting away from morality as a strict set of commands. We're actually seeing this as a more character approach. Uh, morality is in these virtues of loving justice and everything else. And we know that the particular circumstances, sometimes what is loving, what is just – and that sort of thing might might change. It might go against you know certain principles or laws. Tough love. And so that's what's going on when God commands people sometimes to kill. That's what's going on when God sometimes you know changes the commandments for people at a particular point in time. Those commandments were never the standard of goodness. God's character was, and He was determining the what commandments people should follow based on His own character. Doesn't that render it unfalsifiable for us to find out what things we should do? Uh, that's what I was just thinking. <clears throat> because well, we, we need to trust like, God. Trust God, and then he has his reasons, but then how do we derive any sense of what we should do? Yeah, trust that? God, but that doesn't mean we should do the things that he does. Well, yeah, there, I actually do think there is an intelligibility issue here, too, because if if some of these really terrible actions are actually for a loving reason, we would have a hard time looking at the world around us and determining what God's will was. Right. So there are epistemological issues very closely tied into this, some that we've already talked about. I think that's why I was initially convinced, and I think a lot of uh, apologists are convinced that this is a pretty clever way out of Socrates' trap. God's holiness here is not capricious or arbitrary. It's not measured against any standard apart from his own nature. He can act in a way that contradicts his commands or demand others do so as well, but he has good moral reasons that are fully consistent with his nature for doing so. doesn't seem to be much of a problem. But there's something really interesting here that becomes kind of the basis for Kuhn's argument. What if God didn't exist Let's just entertain this as a hypothetical scenario. Let's say, yeah, I know it's really tough for us to get into this headspace, but let's just pretend that God doesn't exist, and we live in a universe where there are actions that seem to match up with descriptions of love, seem to match up with descriptions of justice, and everything else. Would love and justice still be good in this other possible world? Because in this scheme. All good qualities are good just because they're held by God. Love and justice do not seem to be intrinsically good just on their own. Even if in practice, they're indistinguishable from divine love and divine justice. To understand this, I want to uh, read a quick quote from Robert Adams. So we get his view, and this is the view shared by Craig and many others. If there is a God that satisfies the conditions imposed by our concept of the good, we might say then excellence is a property faithfully of faithfully imagining God. In a world where no such God exists, nothing would have that property and nothing would be excellent. But beings like us in such a world might have a concept subjectively indistinguishable from our concept of excellence and there might be an objective property that corresponded to it well enough and in sufficiently salient a way – to be the property signified by it, though it would not be the property we in fact signify by excellent. Here's William Alston. We can think of God himself, the individual being, as the supreme standard of goodness. Lovingness is good, a good-making feature, that on which goodness is superveyant, (laughs) not because of the platonic existence of a general principle or fact, 
to the effect that lovingness is good, but because God, the supreme standard of goodness, is loving. Goodness supervenes on every feature of God, not because some general principles are true, but just because they are features of God. This seems really confusing. I'm seeing everybody shaking Mm. their heads, right? But think about why Austin is saying this. In this, he has to deny that there is some sort of external standard of goodness to God. Right. So that means God's goodness has to be logically prior to any of the qualities we would describe his goodness with. So if typically when I say Dave's a good person, well, why is Dave a good person? Because he's mm-hmm. compassionate. He, you know, he uh, tries to pay his bills on time. He well, takes not, care of his daughters. He besmirched my character right. like that. <laughs> I would list all of these attributes of a good person. Mm. But in, in order to maintain there is no external standard to God, they have to claim no justice, kindness, love. None of these things are moral on their own. None of them are good on their own. They're only good because they happen to be the qualities that God possesses. So how is that not the horn of arbitrariness? Well, that is that is Jeremy Kuhn's argument. What he's trying to point out here— It just kicks the they, can back a bit. What They've actually gone worse than the original Euthyphro's dilemma here because they've emptied the very concept of good of any kind of content. That, let's just presuppose that whatever that God is good and then everything else follows from that. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Here's, here's Jeremy Coons. God is good and in virtue of God's possession of these traits, they too are good. We see then that God cannot be good in virtue of these traits because God's goodness must be logically prior to the goodness of, this, of those traits. So with this in mind, in short, Alston must answer the question, why is being loving good by saying traits like being loving are good making because God has them and God is good. But but on Alston's view, when we say God is good, we haven't said anything because Alston's view prevents him from giving any concrete articulation of what goodness is. Basically, goodness becomes this vacuous concept. Perfect goodness and God's goodness you really can't describe it in terms of these moral qualities because the moral qualities themselves, it's basically the order of direction here. Right, yeah. Because if if you think of it that way, the goodness comes from God and goes in the direction of these activities and these virtues. But God's goodness is independent. And what Kuhns points out is there's this new Euthyphro's dilemma that pops up now. Jeremy Kuhns puts the new Euthyphro's dilemma this way. Why is it good to be loving? Is being loving independently good, apart from its being one of God's traits, or is it good merely because God is loving? They have already said that it's not the first. They can't accept that first horn of the dilemma, that loving is independently good. So it must be the case that loving is only good because God is loving. So we're in a similar place now. If God was hateful and God was, you know, unfair, unjust, Mm -hmm. those would be good qualities too. There's nothing intrinsically good about loving or nothing intrinsically bad about being hateful. So maybe in fact what we consider to be good because it's what God does is actually in a reverse universe is evil. Yeah, it could be. Because it's it's just – If God has slightly different characteristics – so in Bizarro, He's still the ultimate standard. Bizarro world, it's still whatever uh, Bizarro like slash hate is 
what's good slash bad. Now, Alston doesn't see this as, as a problem. Alston says that on, on this particular view, uh, meaning that na- God's nature is the standard of goodness, we're not debarred from saying what is supremely good about God. God is good by virtue of being loving, just, merciful, and so on. And he actually he compares it to a kind of meter stick, quoting Alston further. Let's say what makes a certain length a meter is its equality to a standard meter stick kept in Paris. What makes Which this is actually true of the gram, I think? Well, there is a meter bar in Paris. But there it but the gram is the one I believe if I have my radio lab correct is the only or kilogram whatever it is is the only measurement that was actually chosen to be equal to this one thing as opposed yeah. to reverse engineered. It, it's it's true. Yeah. The Paris one, the history of his analogy is not entirely accurate. It's a fantastic story. But though. yeah, but to, it's, it makes a point. Yes, anyway. He says, well, what makes this table a meter in length is not its conformity to a platonic essence, but its conformity to a concretely existing individual. Mm-hmm. Similarly, on my present suggestion, what most ultimately makes an act of love a good thing is not its conformity to some general principle, uh, but its conformity to God, who is both the ultimate source of the existence of things and the supreme standard by which to be assessed. So God is basically the standard now for all goodness, and we just like love because it looks like God. But uh, again, as Kuhns has pointed out, this turns the goodness of God into what he calls a featureless property. Any aspect, anything that you could typically describe why a person is good doesn't really apply to God. His goodness is logically prior to any of his actions or any of his other attributes. Now, Alston thinks he can get away from this. He says, on this view, we're not debarred from saying what is supremely good about God. God is good in virtue of being love, just, merciful, and so on. Because Alston basically wants to have it both ways. The goodness of loving and justice is explained by there being qualities of God, and God's goodness is explained by possessing these qualities. But Kuhns points out this is a vicious circle. You really haven't actually grounded either of them. Kuhns concludes by saying, in this particularist theory, we have no more or less reason to declare God essentially good than to declare him essentially finord or bixtix. He says, (laughs) for calling God good, we haven't really said anything at all. It makes sense that a theist would want to set up God as the ultimate standard, you know, and judge the morality of actions by how they conform to God. I get that. But I think the standard is a little less inspiring when that being is the standard just because. <laughs> and that seems to be essentially what they're arguing here, you know. God is good just because. Not because of how he behaves, not because of any general moral principle, not by possessing qualities that makes him good, just because. That very abstract notion is useful in a philosophical context. I think what really motivates people morally is, is different. And actually, that's the subject of this episode's God Thinks Like You. Separate from the, from the philosophical issue of that, what, what Jeremy was wrapping up with was talking about how do we independently verify, you know, whether God is, is good in, in this or that respect. But from a psychological point of view, of course, what, what's also interesting is what people perceive God to be and whether that affects their behavior. If I think God has certain qualities 
or whatnot? Does it affect my my take on how I should act uh, or what I consider moral or not? Uh, there was actually an interesting uh, study that was done with looking at differences in people's views of right or wrong moral judgments as a function of whether they view God in terms of being, let's say, an abstract principle like omnipresent omnipotence, omniscience, the theistic type God, as opposed to viewing God as being a anthropomorphic-like person-like agent, mm-hmm. whether God has qualities of being, you know, kind or wrathful or, uh, you know, whether he thinks about things. And, and uh, he even is one of those words. Yeah. Well, yeah. most people, for many people, those things overlap or that or at least theologically you're instructed that they should overlap. Mm-hmm. You are taught what God's properties should be. And you're also taught through Bible stories and such that he has certain, you know, he's a moody guy. He's wrathful. He's caring. He's loving, whatever. He's He's person-like. So those two things are often – many people would say, well, those coincide. But when you actually uh, you know, survey people about listing how much do you believe God is this versus that, there's some wiggle room between the two or there's some daylight. Right. Some people lean more towards God as being a theistic being uh, uh, with those qualities of you know, omniscience or whatnot. But some people conceptualize God in a very person-like agent. In fact, we've uh, – one concrete example of that in the show is that uh, – of. Tanya Lurman's book on God Talks Back, When God Talks Back, when mm. Jeremy and I interviewed her, she talked about the renewalists who are v- like very high in the person-like God dimension. They chat with him about mundane stuff throughout the day. Or I, I feel guess like if God were a person, he would not be the kind of person you'd want to hang out with. No, he, they talk to him about, you know, what should I buy at the store? Or they, have, yeah. they set out coffee in the morning for God and have God <laughs> chats. That's a very anthropomorphic type view of conceptualizing. And so they might... Th- theologically think, yes, yes, he's omnipotent or he knows everything. But the way they're treating them on a day-to-day basis is very he's, anthropomorphic. He's a friend. He's a, a, a trusted advisor. Yeah. So like the uh, in our last podcast, we covered things like how the person's – how your view of things like the person's agents, the, the agency as opposed to like a moral action versus a moral victim affects your view of, you know, God as somebody who's all action – and not a victim. But in this sense, uh, what this study looked at, this, the authors here were Morwedge and Clear. The title is Anthropomorphic God Concepts Engender Moral Judgment. Mm-hmm. Just like last week, we talked about that it sort of compels your view of morality to have a certain view of whether the person is an actor or a victim. In this case, it's, uh, what they found was is that your view of God compels a certain view of morality. So what they did was that they cross-referenced, like I said, the degree to which you view God as being a theological concept, abstract, philosophical qualities, as opposed to anthropomorphic, caring, wrathful, whatever. And then they had them say to what extent the actions that are forbidden by things like the Ten Commandments, so adultery, blaspheming, are they theologically wrong, that is wrong in the sense of religious rules, or are they morally wrong in just a general sense. That is uh, something uh, like a church rule, don't go to church on, or, you know, Sunday you shouldn't work. That's a theological rule, but a lot of people would make a distinction between that and like a general moral rule. Mm -hmm. That is, they wouldn't say that, you know, they they would say that's the rule of my church that doesn't happen to be a property of the universe that you have to do, everybody has to do blah, blah, blah. On Sundays, um, and so what they did was that they had the people judge the various acts about whether they thought that they were uh, just religiously wrong as opposed to wrong in general, like even in a secular sense. And what they found was is that the um, that the, the degree to which you thought that God was more of an anthropomorphic person-like agent that broadened your view of 
acts like that that we would say they don't really hurt anybody. They're just a religious rule. That the people actually expanded those to be generally morally wrong the more they thought of God as a person-like agent. So another way to put that would be if you have a commandment or something of a human-like God, not just a philosophical concept, um, they're not just perceived as like a, a code of conduct, but rather those sorts of moral transgressions are in an individual contract sense. That is, uh, you might have heard before about some work on morality where when somebody conceptualizes uh, an interaction in social terms, they, they act somewhat differently than if they think they're, for example, playing with a computer. Or it's like, you know, so like some of these studies like on economic games, if you're given an offer, like uh, the computer gets 10 bucks, he's going to offer you $1. Do you want to take it or do you want to veto the whole thing? People take the money if it's a computer because, mm. hey, a dollar is a dollar, even though it's chump change. But if you think that you're playing a person in that game, people get indignant when yeah. the offer is too small. <laughs> that is, if it's Dave's in another room, he just got 10 bucks, he's offering you 2 bucks. Do you want to take the offer or void it for everybody? People say, screw you, man. I'm not going to take – even though they would benefit. They'll gladly punish themselves to shaft the other person as well. Yeah, so that shows that there's, there's a certain mode or module that you get into where it's not just an economic abstract numbers. If you think that you're, if you think that you're in a social situation, you have emotions like indignancy, teaching the guy a lesson – Blah, 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 that, that, that make it uh, – your, your reactions are different. Well, this study shows that it's like that with God too. If it would just be a moral abstract law on a tablet somewhere, people might have certain notions about, well, some of these are more important than others. The killing part Some of this cultural stuff, some of its maybe not the Sabbath, historic and context. Honor the yeah. parents. You can take that or leave it. But if you view God as being a guy that you just made a promise to, that is your mind is interacting with that person as another individual – you take those things much more seriously, even the ones that we would say would be sort of ridiculous or not harmful. Yeah. You so know? if Jesus is your buddy, you're going to follow what he says. Because or what yeah, you think because he in that in that case, disobeying something is violating a, uh, a relationship right, that you have with right. the person. Yeah. Yeah, and that fact that another study you guys might be familiar with that showed this principle was uh, Don Ariely. He wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. <laughs> he cited some studies like in Israel where people uh, were had their kids in daycare and they kept showing up late a lot of the time. And so the daycare providers were like, oh, these parents coming by. They should have picked their kids up 10 minutes ago. Let's make a fine system and we'll put a, time, we'll put a monetary value on if you oh, are half an I hour late – We'll dock you, you know, 10 bucks or something like that. What they found was that the violations of the parents being late increased yeah. after they put a monetary value as opposed They're to They're like, oh, before. I just I just pay an extra 10 bucks and I – yeah, sure, So whatever. his explanation and there's other studies like this show that you took something of what before was in like an embarrassment. Oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. You were hurting a person to now you've monetarized now uh, it and the person were like, oh, I, all they're going to do is find me 10 bucks. Yeah. I'll take my time. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to, I don't have to skip this errand because it's just going to be five bucks. It's so, going to be cheaper for me to do this and be late. Exactly. So the moral standards uh, became more lax when they monetarized it because it took it out of the social system. But people actually watch their P's and Q's a bit more if you are governed by things like I lied to that person or I'm violating their trust. Like if the daycare would say – Say to the parents who are late, look, I've got to get home to my kids yeah. and I've got – they would be much more – Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Triggers, triggers those social instincts. Hmm. So now move this into the realm of God. You know, If you're looking at God as this really abstract philosophical entity and you accidentally say, god damn it, when you hit your thumb right. with a hammer, you know, um, okay, 
not a big deal. Yeah. Not going to send cosmic ripples through the universe and under, undo anything. But if instead God is a person that yeah. rea- has feelings and reacts to you. Lies make baby Jesus cry. Yeah. yeah. You've just you've just insulted a person. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could even And all that. your social instincts that go with that kick in. Maybe that's why religions have encouraged having an icon of the bloody Jesus on the cross sure, as opposed to sure. a more abstract thing because yeah. because it does have the effect of lies make baby Jesus cry. Yeah, if you if you just have a cross it's abstract. If you have a crucifix with, with bloody Jesus on it, all of a sudden you've got you got to look this guy in the eye and tell him what you did. Yeah. So, so the bottom line is that, that, that when God's relationship or you have with God is viewed in terms of a social contract, then it's, those rule violations are believed to be more harmful because mm-hmm. you're violating a personal relationship. If only we could somehow get that mindset to work on the internet where that people would – rather than – Oh, I'm making an abstract statement on a YouTube video and actually noticing that there are actual people there. Yeah. Well, I've you know, thought, I mean, it, has anybody done a study? I don't know if they they might have done this because it seems easy of icons that show uh, a libertarian flag or something like that to represent Joe Tea Party as opposed to a picture of a guy. And that looks like a real picture. That is, or here's the actual how person. About, Would you like, be more polite to them? Like the people who use pictures of their adorable children or something as their avatar. Are people going to be less less willing to engage in hmm. uh, horrible, insulting kinds of statements? Like, yeah. That's well, an interesting I don't question. Know. Some of the other studies by Ariely suggest that a lot of financial shenanigans are made po- more possible by this abstract nature of credits and numbers on the computer and guys. Mm-hmm. And when they interviewed him, like, you just embezzled millions of dollars, to them it was just numbers it's on the computer. It's just moving numbers. Yeah. They would never yeah. do that if it was an actual stack of bills in front of them. If you could see the people who were being harmed by yeah. so, the decisions. Uh, uh, yeah. Glover's book Humanity, a moral history of the 21st century, devotes several chapters to mm. how much the casualties in wars in World War II and other wars oh, increased when people were just nobody cared about firebombing Dresden. Right. Nobody well, gave a shit about that. And look at it but now that we have. They drones. were not as well. Yeah, they were not as willing. You know, face to face, it's harder yeah. to kill a person. You don't even have to be. The- be physically above them to drop a bomb on them now. It's We're just distancing further and further well, from the actual... Some of the studies that Ariely did on cheating were, were, were that in some conditions he would have the actual bills and you know people could walk off with them or take extra money from the envelope. But when he substituted in poker chips that could then be exchanged for the money, people became less moral with the poker chips because he added that one step of abstractness there that it wasn't real money you're walking off with, it's just a chip. And that the chip could later on be turned in for money, and that one step of the removal made people change their standards and become more lax. Make it a Bitcoin and see what happens then. Philosophy of religion, you know, bringing this back to the Euthyphro's dilemma. In philosophy of religion, when we are philosophically or rationally defending God, we always retreat retreat into this philosopher's God. But I don't think people can consistently believe and follow with a passion I mean, I might be a fool here, and I'm sure I'm going to get some people saying, I do worship the philosophical God. The temptation to anthropomorphize this deity is is really, really high, even when that pushes us into weird contradictions, like having God who has this undifferentiated quality of abstract goodness, Mm -hmm. but then has all these human-like virtues – Right. That that we that we stack onto that well, abstract with these philosophers, the Christian apologists that you often 
quote, I sometimes go into my mind is if you think that you have a tough audience because it's we're atheists, try going into just your average mundane working class Christian congregation and present some of your ideas that God has no standards of this and that and it's all that and see how they react to it. Yeah. You know, it's not just it's unintelligible because I'm a godless heathen. Yeah. It's unintelligible to the actual people who believe the stuff right. to yes. when the, when you start trundling out these very abstract arguments. As evidence to how quickly they switch their frames depending on the mm-hmm. context. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, shall we wrap up with some props and shit list? Let's Sound, do. Let's sounds do good that. to me. Okay. Uh, on the shit list, we have uh, the Mormon Church, actually. There's actually a kind of feminist movement in Mormonism that's gaining momentum. That's not the shit list part. No, no. I that's... think that's the great part. Although shocking. Yeah. Uh, certainly. Yeah. A little bit surprising. Uh you can find websites like youngmormonfeminists.org or, or the ironically named Feminist Mormon Housewives. <laughs> you can be all of those things. Yes, there's so, – there's, of course. I don't course. recommend one of them, but, of course. you know, Retor- you Rhetorically, that's not the URL yes. I would have chosen, but, uh, <laughs> but you could be all those things. There's the annual wear pants to church day protest uh, since Mormon women typically wear dresses or skirts. Uh, when you, they when, have these organized protests. When you protests. said that, I, I immediately went to wear pants as in like werewolves oh. and I don't know why but that was where my mind went and I felt I needed to share that with people. Wear pants. As wear pants. When there's a full moon, I turn into a pair of trousers. Uh, so there's a, a number of activities, and I guess more recently, uh, Ordain Women started in 2013 by uh, human rights lawyer Kate Kelly. As the name suggests, they're pushing for the ordination of women within the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was kind of shocked by this. The Mormon priesthood, I guess some of these men are ordained as early as the age of 12. Wow. Well, they call them elders, right? So, yeah, they uh, call them elders. <laughs> Uh, quite understandably, makes some women in the congregation upset that some twelve-year-old kid has, uh, you know, a higher ranking than and them. Tell them they what do. to do with their body and so forth. So Kate Kelly uh, organized these uh, demonstrations outside of the church's uh, annual conferences in Temple Square, Salt Lake City. You know, saying why are they barred from entering these kind of discussions? Why can't they be a part of the priesthood as well? All of that I view as pretty encouraging developments in in the Mormon church, especially when you consider what some of the polls reveal about Mormon beliefs. In a 2012 Pew survey, 90% of women in the Mormon church did not think females should hold the priesthood. Actually, 84% of men didn't think so either. So actually, the women were there were more women against the priesthood than men, just slightly. But and well, of course, their husbands told them what to think, and therefore, you really. And since they each have multiple wives, <laughs> and these are stereotypes. I didn't think about that. That See, might that actually make really, the numbers work. Eh? More than half of Mormons, uh, for Mormon women, think the best marriages are where the husband works and the wife stays at home. So, I mean, the women within the Mormon Church and the and the men are still very, very conservative in their attitudes, mm. which to me makes it all the more important. Impressive that, that you see this feminist there uprising. Like this that happening. there are there is a vocal minority of people who are pushing changes, yeah. and uh, you know it seemed like for a while that they were having a pretty good inf- impact. Um, and, and that would have made our props list. Yeah, some of the things that happened. They lowered the age uh, for young women to become missionaries because a lot of them that's essential to being a part of the higher church arc- yes. hierarchy. But this was hitting women at a lot of times when they're in college and 
uh, maybe trying to start a family and, and weren't mm-hmm. eager to go on the mission trip. So they're changing their rules around that. They're allowing uh, women to lead opening and closing prayers, uh, even at some of their big conferences, which is a small step in the right direction. I mean, it's uh, a small step, but it's a big step. That a slightly right. bigger step is changing the leadership of their the leadership structure of their local congregations, so that women could actually hold seats on each ward council that they have. They're even encouraging women to weigh in on weighty doctrinal issues in some speeches like outside of the church, but mm-hmm. speeches about Mormon policy. You know, They're everything, letting women have a voice about yeah, Mormon policy. Everything adding up to make it look like this small group has had an impact and there's mm-hmm. some serious change. And then we have this past June, Kate Kelly is suddenly excommunicated. From the church. Kicked right out. Yeah. Ordained – she's the one, again, who started Ordain Women. Bishop Mark Harrison informed her by an email that she had been excommunicated for conduct contrary to the laws and order of the church. Mm-hmm. And it said, you will need to demonstrate over a period of time they will let you back in. You're not sure. always – you're not excommunicated for life. But uh, you need to demonstrate over a period of time, they said – that you have stopped the teachings and actions and that undermine the church and its leaders and the doctrines of the priesthood. Uh, you must stop trying to gain a following for yourself or your cause or taking actions that would lead others from the church. Stop trying to have an opinion, lady. Yeah, well, I like Kelly's response to this. Yeah. You know, they, the Mormon church is saying this, they call it a love corrective, Right. They're trying to show love to her by letting her get back in, you know, just restore your relationship with the church and everything. And she just calls it out. She says that's the classic language of an abusive relationship where a person abusing and hurting you says they're doing it out of love. They also accuse her of apostasy, and I I liked her response to that very much too. She said, quote, I'm not an apostate unless every single person who has questions to ask out loud is an apostate. I'm a faithful, active Mormon woman who has never spoken anything against the leaders of the church, and that's not my definition of an apostate. Yeah. Some are thinking this is the start of a kind of new round of purges. I mm. guess I guess this happened several years ago. There was a uh, – in 1993, what they call the September 6, a group of six mostly academics, a few activists who were just – you know, high-profile people within the church who, or at least scholars at some of their schools who were just suddenly excommunicated. There were just these waves of them to try to make an example. And uh, actually, if you look at the reasons why uh, the September 6th, I mean, I, I guess we have to take their word for it because the church keeps a tight lid on these on files. Everything. At least their opinion was, uh, and you can see their activities, a majority of those people were supporting feminist causes. Some were excommunicated because of, you know, challenging some historical evidence in regards to the Book of Mormon or or taking more liberal theological positions. But uh, tied to almost every one of them was some sort of concern for feminism and equality for women. So hopefully what this is going to do, Mormon Church on the shit list, Kate Kelly and her group's on the props list, mm-hmm. hopefully what this will do is that people won't back down, that this will just add more speed well, to the movement. We'll see. Did you see they're displaying some of the plates from the – or some of the pictures from the Book of Mormon, like the Egyptian hieroglyphics? No. 
Yeah, the church decided to put some rare items now <laughs> on display behind the cases. Really? You can go and look at them there. They just show the image on the internet if you want to Google it, but there's like the you know how Joseph Smith supposedly transformed it from reformed Egyptian? Yes. And there's, it's like a hieroglyphics-looking thing yeah. that was there with this thing. You can actually go see it. Because they, they've kept a close lid on that stuff because, well, for they the obvious reason. finding out that he didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, so, wow, that'll be real interesting now that that's available. I wonder – I'm assuming they're very strategic in which pieces they're – Let's find an Egyptologist and you, go on a field trip. You can read it yourself. Bird eye, water, bird, bird eye. <laughs> Hawk, uh, Horace. Kind of on the flip side of what's been happening in uh, the Mormon church, we have uh, props for the Church of England, which uh, earlier this summer as well voted to allow women into the priesthood. So they yeah, are. And, and that was almost the opposite of the Mormon situation yeah. because it was the. It was the, for example, the House of Bishops, one of the three houses that mm-hmm. votes on these, was almost – actually, I think they were unanimously in favor of it. I'm not sure anybody rejected yeah. it. It was – all of the pushback was actually coming from the the House of uh, of the Laity. And even then, it wasn't a whole lot of pushback. Uh, it was just a couple of conservative groups. Uh, Interestingly, though, it, it, this is according to an article on NPR, a similar proposal was narrowly defeated – in yep. 2012, that that's two years ago, it was defeated, and now it it gets yeah. through uh, just fine. Part of the reason why this new one got through is because they added a little addendum to it that said that local parishes could request a male, a male. if their congregation. But what's interesting but. is, yeah, both the critics and the supporters of this point out there's. There's no kind of set of rules or regulations that that force them to do anything they, about it. They said the uh, they can just they can request one. Yeah, and, but there's no guarantees. Yeah, which is I I, I like that. That's yeah. great. Now you know I don't understand why anyone joins any priesthood, but if uh, women want to, well, and they I think be allowed I to. think with the Church of England, it's kind of a separate case too because yeah, uh, that is a so. state church, yes. so that really affects people who aren't even. Even you though know, it exists outside yeah. of England as well, but yes. yeah, yeah, but but as such, within there, I mean, not everybody who's using those churches' services are believers or anything else. A lot of people are getting weddings and different rites of passage in there, and they should have people serving them who better represent the population, you know, and aren't falsely cutting off half shows, of the people. Each, each story shows that that you have kind of choices as you're. Uh, a religious group that's trying to deal with modernity is do you double down, like in the first case of the Mormons, and, uh, and purge the liberal elements in order to have a refined, core, hardcore, loyal following, which works for some purpose. You're smaller, but you're tighter. Or the insert joke, uh, the opposite <laughs> would be what Anglicans are doing, the expanding to be as ecumenical as possible, which leads yeah. to more members but less devout members. And so you have certain right. choices to make there about what kind of group you – and this is not just religious groups. What sort of group you want to be? Do you want to be sort of an all – we'll take all comers, which will lead to somewhat more diffused loyalty because people yeah. will be like, oh, it's cool. Your rules are cool, man. Anybody can do it. Get everyone under the tent for a, a – much uh, more diluted, diluted. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, whereas the hardcore groups actually are correct, and that is that when you purge the these backsliders, you are left with a core of people who are more loyal. Look at the that, Republican Party. Yeah. So yeah. W- you have to choose what you want to, what sort of group you want to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very true. 
All right. That's going to do it for us this week. Um, until next time when I believe – can we spoil this in advance? Yeah, go ahead. We are uh, hopefully, if the stars align correctly, going to have an interview with Greta Christina, who is – uh, I think a favorite blogger of a lot of our listeners, or at least I hope. <laughs> listeners won't be Greta. Uh, uh. So that should be coming up on our, our very next episode. Also, Justin's most recent debate, we will, if possible, make that available through YouTube, uh, if nothing else. And you can check out all of our videos at youtube.com slash doubtcast. Um, also, Facebook or uh, Twitter slash Doubtcast. Of course, in the meantime, you can email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Send us your challenges, questions, and we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Bishop Mark Harrison informed her by an email that she was being executed, quote, for conduct contrary. Not, not executed. Uh, did I say executed? Yes. Oh, dear. I can do that. That's the ISIS Mormon church. You could do that? In Utah. <laughs>